Okay, so this intro is going to be short. We've listened to our patrons on Patreon, and we have listened to the um, the folks on our social media and people that we've encountered in person, and they have said 15-minute intros are not sweet. Well, it's kind of funny because I remember uh, I was like, dude, I, th- I think our uh, intros are too long, and then it was like, I, I edited last week's intro and I submitted a 15 minute intro to you. So I kind of and then didn't I cut even it, follow I, my own advice. I think I cut it down to maybe closer to closer to 14 or like barely above oh, 15. Oh, nice. You yeah. Just, you, yeah. You cut a couple of those I just had to usurp ums. you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, but let's let's keep it shorter, right? Yeah, yeah. And get right to the good I, shit. The idea of these being long is to um, explain how our Patreon is helping us produce these. And so, I guess to cut all that short, if you'd like to support us, go to www.patreon.com forward slash crude magazine and shout out to our first and only company man right now, Trina Duber. Yeah, Trina. All right, so Michael Downey, that's that's who we're about to interview or, or have a conversation with. Or who we did have a conversation yeah. with. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you know him from high school, correct? I do, yeah. We went to high school together. All right, so qu- real quick, what was Downey like in high school? He is an absolute character. He could, it would not surprise me in the least bit if in the next couple months, in the next year, the next two years, whenever, um, it comes out that he's he's landed this huge you know, acting debut and he just absolutely kills it. Yeah, I mean, he was doing some pretty awesome voices. Which- yeah. Should should make it into the podcast, so yeah, especially that that one at the end. You should definitely tune into that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I like absolutely. That one. Yeah. All right, so here's Michael Downey. Mike is hot. Mike's hot. Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. I don't know where your notebook is, Dustin. Oh, I don't Trying to be professionals here, for God's sakes. And we got a caller in. I think it's the former president, Barack Obama. Well, uh, hey, hey there, Cody. I, I just want to thank you for calling in today. Uh, I, I appreciate everything you're doing with the, the podcast. And uh, I, I subscribe. M- Michelle loves it. I just want to say there's a lot of folks out there. Uh, they appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You should do. Better. Thank you, Mr. President. <laughs> well, you're you're welcome, boys, and uh, look look forward to hearing the the next episode. <laughs> you should do fake endorsements. Yeah, oh, Barack Obama so thinks it's awesome. great. Voice actors that do fake endorsements. <laughs> Have you heard the new Eminem album? Uh, I haven't actually. You know, it's I don't know if I want to because uh, you know I heard a lot of people talking. You know, just saying disappointed like an aging rapper who can't really keep up with it. And I just don't know if I want to, you know, have, are these your, have everything ruined. You are know? these your New York Times friends that are telling you this? These are the New York Times. Uh, no, that was actually Pitchfork, but they're always brutal on reviews. 
Yeah, unless it's like a like an indie rock album. Yeah. Yeah, yeah or some EDM shit. <laughs> they're like, Animal Collective did a 90-minute track with just whale noises, but then, <laughs> you know, auto-tuned it. Then they're like, oh, man, that's a 9.8. Even even then, they wouldn't give it a 10. <laughs> <laughs> what would they give a 10? Uh, well, I think, I think like one of the highest ones they had was Vampire Weekend's last album, which, uh, which was really good. It but, was. Um, I don't know. They're, they're just, they're sticklers. They're prudes. You know? I thought they had it together in, I think it was 2007. They did like their, uh, top 50 albums or whatever they do of the year. And yeah, I thought they really, but I haven't. I, I, I don't read then. new Pitchfork. Yeah. Only old Pitchfork. <laughs> just, <laughs> just go back in the archive. <laughs> I only listen to old albums. <laughs> no, but then they'll do weird stuff where all of a sudden it's like... Uh, hey, Dustin, let me get your levels. You know, Nikki or, or uh, Cardi B, you know, they'll be like, Cardi B, nine. And you're like, what? Dude, what? Party with Cardi. Party with Cardi. Cardi, what? Cardi. And you're like, no, no, no. Come on, guys. Is this their treat? What what is this Cardi B I keep hearing? And I heard she got in a fight with uh, Nicki Minaj. And the only thing I've seen of Cardi B is like someone was like, "Here's a bunch of animals to Cardi B noises" or some video they made. <laughs> Does she make weird noises? Uh, I, yeah, I don't I don't know. I think most raptors these days, the new ones are raptors. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about animals, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean the new Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. it's yeah. I, I think uh, it's it really polarized some people. Yeah. Yeah. What can you do with your kids these days, you know? Cool. Well, let's kick this shit off and get, get down to some real business. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, no more talking about dinosaurs? Oh, no. We'll get back to dinosaurs. Okay. You can listen to the other podcast, Dino Talk. Every <laughs> 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 uh, They may be dead, but not in our hearts. So not in our right. hearts. Damn. You're from Anchorage? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Anchorage. Um, went to Bear Valley Elementary. You know, um, and then uh, Golden View and service, uh, and then they built South. So then sophomore year went there. So yeah, born and raised here, and then went to school Western Washington, and have always been coming back here. Um, you know, I commercial fished for a while out in uh, King, out of King Cove area, M, and then uh, before that, bit of gill netting out of Cook Inlet. Um, so yeah, yeah, you know, even when I moved away, even when I went to the Middle East, you know, I'd still come back for a bit in the summer. End of the winter because I mean there's there's really no better place, in my opinion, in the world here. Like summers up here, it's incredible. How about the winters? If you ski or snowboard, amazing. Though mm -hmm. the past few winters when I've been up here, I've gotten totally screwed. You know, it's I've uh, you know, climate change. You know, it's oh, it's like, real. It's totally. It's like how do you you know yeah. deny that when I remember as kids like our winters up here were. <laughs> way more harsh i always remember october's because october's meant halloween you go get a halloween costume but all the extra larges were sold out all the smalls were there all the mediums were there larges and extra larges were sold out because your snow gear under exactly it. Yeah. yeah yeah now now it's I it's mean, all the larges and extra larges. i go i go as a mermaid every year now <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll be coming up, you know, I usually come up like 10 days before Christmas or something, and then I've been up here the past few times, and there's green grass Yeah, my parents' house up in Hillside. It's, it's crazy. It's insane. And, you know, walking around in a t-shirt, you know, it's like 55 degrees. It's, and cargo shorts. <laughs> I do not wear cargo shorts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... I'm, I'm not cool enough. Yeah. So you... you um. 
for college, you went to Western Washington. And what did you study? I studied Arabic and Middle Eastern studies. So it was kind of random. I originally was going to do international business. And after my first accounting class, I was like, nope, not into this. Uh, so, and I, I saw that Arabic class. So I was just like, oh, that'd be interesting. And kept taking it. And then it got to the point where I was like, oh, no, I've taken so many Arabic classes that if I don't major in this, you know, I'm going to be at So you accidentally forever. majored in this. Accidentally, yeah, yeah. And then uh, I ran out of classes to take at Western Washington University. So then I went to the American University in Cairo to finish up, you know, the rest of my classes and requirements for that. And then, you know, the rest of it was history of the region, uh, various religions, uh, just kind of, you know, politics, international relations. That's what my minor is in. So, and then from there, just stumbled onto journalism. You know, the whole thing has kind of been, I guess, by chance, you know? Yeah, no, I know. I, I got pretty excited because my degree was in uh, international relations as well. Um, and uh, and then I worked for a few years with the U.S. Department of State and public diplomacy and ended up working with a lot of people from the Middle East. So to kind of see you take a similar path going from those those kind of studies into journalism is uh, is pretty sweet, I'd say. You know, and I'm, I'm excited for some of the things we're going to be able to talk to talk about tonight. And so what was that trajectory like? Like, what was your first journalism job? Um, so first job was, so basically, I wrote my thesis uh, uh, about the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And you know, I had a bunch of really good contacts in there with the uh, head of the youth movement, uh, Khaled Hamza. And I just, you know, I, for the thesis, I had a few set questions, and that didn't take very long. And it took a while to get a hold of them because they were uh, still technically illegal, but also semi-tolerated at the time when Mubarak was still in power in 2010. And, uh, you know, I, I basically asked him, I said, hey, Mubarak's getting old. Uh, this is the former president of Egypt. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen when he dies if there are free and fair elections? You know, what's your stance on women's rights, uh, relations uh, with Israel? Just you know, kind of like across the board questions. And that was in June of 2010. And then just kind of like sat on it, didn't think anything. Then uh, January 25th rolls around, see some sizable protests. But, you know, friends in Cairo were like, at the time I was in Bellingham, Washington, I was calling them up and uh, it's like, what do you think about this? Is this going to build? And everyone's like, no, because it's, it's happened before. They're like, he'll crush it. It'll be it. Then it started to build. You know, the next day it got bigger and it, it was clear, like, this is gaining some momentum. So, you know, I just sent out just e cold emailed a bunch of editors and, um, you know, most people were like, what have you written before? I'm like, eh, nothing really. I'm, I'm a student. So, uh, but World Policy Institute um, ba basically took a chance and they basically published, I wrote, you know, a bit of a thing and then um, did a transcript uh, of the interview. And then, you know, after that, uh, The Atlantic picked that up, then Time, um, a few others, Columbia Journalism Review. And then all of a sudden just got a call from this French journalist who's like, hey, can you come to Egypt and help me? So then I'd talk to my professors like, how would you feel about me uh, missing a little bit of class? <laughs> and go, <laughs> go join this revolution. So yeah, just hopped on a plane uh, and then went and covered that. And then that's when the, you know, my first real articles with Rolling Stone magazine uh, for the Middle East edition. From then until 2012, I kept writing for them, you know, some stuff politics, some stuff music. And and then slowly kind of transitioned a bit more towards photography, 
um, which first photo thing I did was actually Portugal the Man uh, and for Rolling Stone US uh, out in Wasilla. And then, then t- towards video, uh, you know, filmed for Channel 4 UK, and then that's when uh, BBC picked me up and I joined them for about a year before going off and, you know, doing the stuff I'm doing now. And this is the, the stuff you're doing currently is for New York Times, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I just got back from Zimbabwe a month ago um, doing basically video dispatches. So it's like anywhere from like four to six minutes kind of looking at, you know, the the whole story, you know. So for Zimbabwe, it was centered around the elections, but it's like, okay, we're, what's been happening in Zimbabwe for the past 37 years under Mugabe and, and where is it heading? Um, so yeah, so now I'm, you know, kind of branching out from the Middle East a bit more, Middle East, Africa, um, maybe some stuff in Europe, so. You know, I, I talked to you, I think while you were in either Lebanon or Zimbabwe, and I remember you were, you were pretty shook, um, from the situation that you had just come from. You were like, there was bullets whizzing by, there was, it was, it was mayhem. You were in a war zone. Oh, that that was uh, Gaza. Okay, Gaza. Yeah, yeah. The last time um, was covering Gaza for PBS NewsHour, and that was the day of like the the big march. Um, you know, it was it was right before, uh, day before the Al Nakba march, which is the day that they call in Arabic means the catastrophe of when uh, Palestine uh, was taken um, from under their control, and it was nineteen forty eight. Uh, anyways. Um, so, you know, there's Gaza is essentially uh, the world's biggest prison. Uh, you want to go in and out of there. You, you first arrive and, you know, it's passport stamp, passport control. But then you go through a series of rooms that just, you know, you get locked in and then there's cameras up in each corner. I mean, it's very Orwellian. It's, uh, it's, it's very bizarre. And I, I, I'm, I'm kind of having trouble understanding this. So when you get into Gaza, it's like a, a, a sequence of rooms, like almost like a labyrinth. Uh, I mean, it's like you'll go to one room. They'll check all your stuff, go through everything. Um, kind of like customs. Kind of. But it's 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 so much more unnecessary because you'll go you'll you know do the security check and then you just sit in a room. You're just standing there and you can see like the outside where it's a gate. It's kind of a long uh, chained fence that you have to like, you know, there's little carts that pick you up and drive you to the other side. But you'll just like stand there. There's no reason. No reason for it all. I mean, it's really just to, you know, you could say that the reasons they do that is to to make it as uncomfortable for you as possible. So to dissuade journalists for coming back. And I mean, and when we exited, you know, they take out all your gear. They threw one of my lenses, uh, cracked, cracked one of them and just like toss all your stuff. You know, it's a subtle way. It's I'm, intimidation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cause I mean, what we, what we saw them do is they were, uh, unarmed protesters marching along the fence. You know, some of them weren't even storming it, just getting sniped. Uh, they, they shot over, over 1200 people. I think the f- official number is higher. 1500 people who were sniped. Um, six at least 60 killed and i mean it, it was it was madness did you see any of this oh yeah i mean we were we were covering the whole thing filming that and you know along the fence and i mean you could hear Is, you, you are, could hear the pop shots and, and then the field hospitals were just i've never seen something you know a place that busy like your worst day you know it's you know any other offensive or whatever, you're not going to have that many casualties. But this was, I mean, 1,500 people is 
they couldn't keep up with it. Holy shit. And because of the blockade on Gaza, it's really hard for people to get even prosthetic limbs. So you're, now you have a, you know, a large population that's going to be completely, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to have any kind of mobility. So it's the, the situation there is pretty dire. And so as a, a journalist now that has fallen into this field of journalism, what makes you want to keep going back to these places, these worn, torn places like Gaza? And, and instead of just being like, oh, fuck it, I quit. Like this is, I almost got shot. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, uh, you definitely have those moments where you're like, this is not good, you know, and, uh, you know, the, you know, most people like to say like, oh, you know, do it for the story and the good. It's like, yeah, no, that is true. Yeah, there is, there is a function to that, of course. But I think the reason going to these places, I mean, for one, you know, it's been studying the language, speaking it so long, it's kind of my niche. So, and as a freelancer, you know, anytime someone calls you up and they're like, hey, you know, can you go do this? You're like, you, when someone says jump, you say, yeah, how high? Let's go. Um, so you just always, you know, you got to be ready to take work because there's there's times when there's nothing going on. Uh, you know, you got to prepare for those times when it's just a drought. Like end of the year, usually by November, everyone's spent their year budgets and things get really slow. So that's part of it, you know, obviously that's, it is a job. Um, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, you know, I go for truth and I go for, I mean, that's, that is part of it. You know, the idea of journalism is to, I mean, especially in, with Gaza, you know, a lot of our coverage could hold a lot of people accountable. You know, they're using live ammunition, uh, sniping protesters. So, you know, that, that's for historic record and possibly, you know, at, at some point if there were any, you know, the UN were to look into war crimes that, you know, could have that function. So, you know, that's the admirable part of it. Uh, you know, the other part is that, um, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say it was exciting. You know, there is a, there is something about all of a sudden, you know, you get a call and it's like, hey, you know, when I was with the BBC, you'd get a call and it's like, you need, you know, four hours and you got to be on a plane and head to Iraq. So, you know, and the second all of a sudden, you know, you're getting all your gear ready. It's like, you, it's a bit of a rush. It's like a constant, it's exciting. Um, you know, you get a front seat to history. Um, sometimes it's, yeah, it's not the most pleasant thing and it's pretty horrible, but, um, you know, other times you do get, you know, you do get to tell amazing stories and you get a, you know, a chance to really just kind of project stuff that normally wouldn't get a lot of attention. So you spend half the time covering the Middle East and then roughly the other half of the year here in Alaska. Is that correct? Um, I used to, but now, now it's more, most of my time is overseas. Um, you know, my, my apartments in Beirut. Um, I used to usually what I used to do would be, you know, I'd head back to Alaska early May and then, you know, it'd have to be on the boat for preseason around like May 25th, 27th, somewhere around there. And then would fish until the end of August. So, and then would come back for like a month in December, see the family. But now, now that time's, you know, really kind of shrank. It's, it, things are so busy where I don't get, you know, unfortunately as much time back here. But, you know, this time I've actually had three weeks back, which has been amazing. You know, just being able to unwind, hike, paraglide. You know, so, so going there. back and forth from like, you know, reporting in these somewhat war zones 
and then coming to Alaska, you know, how has that affected you over the years, kind of going back and forth that almost yin and yang? Uh, I mean, at first, it's uh, the, the contrast is pretty stark, and it definitely was a little bit, um, you know, you'd find yourself, you know, especially coming directly from, you know, a place like that, then all of a sudden you're here. And, you know, you'd, re you'd be a little bit irritated when, you know, someone would be like, oh, uh, Syria, what's, what's, what's that? You know, what's happening there? And you, you get a little bit frustrated. And, but, you know, you just have to realize it's like, you know what, it's, it's a world away. It's kind of understandable. You know, not everyone is going to be, you know, up to, up to date on that. Obviously, it'd be, you know, the more informed people are, you know, the more, uh, I mean, in terms of, like, if you look at what's happening in Yemen, most people don't know what's happening in Yemen. Most people don't know that there's a risk of 17 million people dipping into a famine because the U.S. is, you know, backing Saudi Arabia's blockade and, and war on, on, you know, mostly civilians there. You know, the Houthis don't uh, control that much territory, really. So, you know, so and we've been the U.S. has sold most of the weapons to Saudi. So most people don't know that. So that's the stuff where you definitely get a little bit frustrated um, like it's basically like, you know, Americans and Alaskans just have it so much easier and such more stability, even yeah. in like your food supply versus like what you see 17 million people on the verge of starvation to have to like be around that and then come back. And it's like, you guys don't even realize how good you have it. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's part of it. Yeah. Not Has that gotten any easier? Cause I, I can imagine that that's, that might be something that's a little pervasive. You know, I think after a while, it's just one of those things where you you really just kind of got to go zen, you know, and, and then just realize, you know, and, and that's also why with my work, um, you know, why I've kind of moved from print to more video is I think you can reach a lot more people with it. And also why, you know, I also kind of want to, you know, get more into, into fiction because I think there's there's certain ways to reach that wider audience. You know, not everyone, yeah, you know, is... It's, it's basically the same demographic that's always going to be going to the New York Times looking for the news. You know, you're not going to you're not going to get everyone. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think while at times, you know, it still can be frustrating stuff. I get it. You know, when I you know, when I come back here, uh, you know, my best thing to do is unplug. And that's also like when I'd be commercial fishing the summers. That was also my way of, you know, you're not using your phone the whole summer, you know, just toss it in your bunk and then check back in once you get back, uh, end of August. And it was, it was bizarre. I mean, one, I remember one of the seasons, um, came back into port at the end of June and my sister had messaged me and she goes, Hey, what do you think about ISIS? What's the deal? With I and I was like, it, cause she, you know, like you're like all sense, like, you know, I remember pitching that in 2013 and editors being like, what ISIS? Like, no, nah, it's not a big concern. You know, they were just, Kind of a, a small group, um, Eastern Syria at the time. Yeah, it wasn't until, you know, bodies started getting burned in cages, right, that we really started paying attention and they started doing some of the more, or were, were those more horrific things happening? Yeah, the propaganda, it, you know, it certainly has an effect. Um, and mostly when, you know, when they took over Mosul, that was that was when all of a sudden it popped up on everyone's radar. Um, and I guess the irony in that is that, you know, they've lost most of their territory, but uh, and all of a sudden now everyone's, oh, you know, ISIS is gone. It's like the reality is it's not. It's an ideology and you can't, you can't bomb it away. 
it's it's not going to go anywhere. You know, I think you you definitely have like this unique perspective that I think a lot of uh, war reporters or international reporters have, where you're in these places where all of these these really horrific fucking things are happening, and you're seeing them firsthand, and then you're you're helping to produce the news in order to affect change, right? Um, I think that that's ultimately the goal with 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 covering these things. And so when you see that maybe they're not affecting change, maybe in, in the way that they should, I mean, I guess, I guess my question is, is who do you think that you're creating the news for? Is it for the, the average like American or the average citizen, or is it, you know, the, uh, the policymakers? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, I don't think it's for, in my view, at least not a specific person. I mean, of course, when you're doing something for like the New York Times, you know, or uh, PBS NewsHour, then you do have policymakers, you know, you know, they're going to be looking at it or watching it. Um, but, you know, ultimately, it's just, you know, your your job as a journalist is, you, you know, is basically ethically and objectively report what's going on and put it out there, you know, because ultimately uh, an informed population is going to be uh, you know more informed electorate and you're going to you're going to have progress you're going to have uh hopefully you know things improve yeah know. so so me and Cody kind of we discussed a little bit about journalism in the first episode you know and we we talked about you know how important it is to be a part of a functioning democracy but that right now in America we seem to have a system that is not designed to inform but is kind of designed to divide. So when you turn into the cable news at night, instead of just being presented what's going out there, you're, you're presented with two talking heads that are just kind of arguing and you just identify with one of them and, and you like automatically fight with them kind of subconsciously. And so last night, I kind of checked, Cody sent me one of the documentaries you worked on. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, it was, let's see, it was called... Inside Turkey's election, a democracy on the brink. And when it opened up, it said, a democracy when its institutions are under threat and its very survival is under threat, we came to Istanbul. And what I felt with that is you were trying to cover something to show Americans like, hey, we could be on our way to this if we're not aware of it. And I thought it was a really good way to present something that was relevant to us. Oh, you know, So can you talk a little bit about that yeah, project? Absolutely. I mean, I think... Um one thing that people tend to underestimate is how easily uh, a country can move towards uh, authoritarianism. Um, and Turkey is a great example of that. Um, I mean, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, you know, after uh, a failed coup, he, he, he jailed all of his opponents. And even beyond that, I mean, you look at doctors, uh, professors, students, the, the numbers are massive. I think it's over, over 15,000. Um, and just eliminated all opposition. And anyone in the press, you know, just shuts down newspapers. The second you start going after uh, the press or freedom of speech, that's when you know you're in trouble. And it's particularly troubling when you hear the President of the United States talking about wanting to shut down newspapers. Um, I mean... It's, I it's think I think a, I think a lot of people tend to think or tend to believe that that happens over there, not here, mm -hmm. and they can't bring that same mentality, that same ob objective uh, kind of onlooking 
like inward. Oh, it's it's possible anywhere. I mean, that's the thing. If I remember, you know, after the Arab Spring was happening and their protests started in Syria and talking to some people and being like, do you think this is going to, and this was after Libya, it was like, do you think this is going to turn into something similar? And people were like, no, no, the economy's fine, you know. Sure, Assad, you know, he's a dictator, but things are a bit looser here. It's, it's you know, it, it'll... He's a cool dictator. It'll never happen. It'll, uh, and and then now look at it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the whole thing is never, never say never, because it can, it can always take a crazy turn. And, and there's early signs of it, too. I mean, if you look at how regimes work everywhere else, you know, the... the the president or leader, you know, whatever they want to call themselves, uh, they'll always put family members in positions of power. And, you know, what, what is, what has President Trump done? It's, it's very similar. If you actually look at the correlations, it's almost as if, you know, authoritarianism 101. Um, and, and the people that he's, you know, buddied up to, you, you know, the way he talks about, you know, he called up Erdogan congratulating him. He called up Putin after, uh, election congratulating him. He called up uh, the president of the Philippines. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, that's that's uh, a troubling sign that instead of, you know, you're congratulating someone who, people who knowingly rig elections uh, are despots. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's wild times. And the amount of trust in, in the press uh, is, is at an all-time low. And I mean, a lot of that polarization, I think, is due to TV. You know, you like you like you were saying, it's it's you 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 turn on cable news and it's mostly just a shouting match. Yeah, but what I'm just thinking, what if when you tuned in at night, instead of seeing that shouting match, you would you were able to see this documentary? But the problem is, is that is that that short documentary you created doesn't make the money. It doesn't get the people looking. It doesn't, you know. And and we have a system designed to make money. Mm. Right. I mean, do you do you think that that would compete with the shouting heads and get the amount of uh, viewers that is needed to sell commercials? Well, I think the whole like where we are now in journalism, it's it's we're we're in a very pivotal moment because we're seeing a lot of stuff moving to online. Print is barely hanging on most people. But at the same time, you're seeing subscriptions actually working. I mean, uh, The New York Times, Washington Post. Are doing incredibly well because uh, once you know people are like oh you know it's only 99 cents a month like sure why not and uh you're seeing a lot more people go go to these outlets for video for print for multimedia stories and i think less people for on television i mean i think the demographic that's watching cable news is kind of our parents generation older so it's shifting and they're trying to now like the industry's kind of figuring out how do we make money? How do we, uh, new ways of advertising or is it subscription based? Um, and you know, younger people are, are looking more to online outlets. You know, they're looking for, you know, now more than ever, I think people are embracing kind of documentary style. You know, you don't need necessarily a, a correspondent to be leading you through everything. I think there is definitely a thirst for, good quality journalism. It's just that, you know, a lot of massive uh, media giants are, you know, catering to the lowest common denominator. They're underestimating people's capacity. So um, they're still hanging on to that old model. Yeah, exactly. And it's shifting. And now they're, you know, people are becoming acutely aware with different streaming services and that that's like, oh, it's changing. That's why you've got, 
you know, Vice has a deal with HBO for their nightly news program and then their, you know, their weekly documentary show. Um, and now the New York Times has got now have a, has a deal with FX to produce a weekly show looking about how a story gets made. So it's shifting um, and hopefully it'll work. But, you know, I think the the TV model that is like cable TV, a lot of it depends on conflict and you know, to, to keep that going of like, oh, next, you know, here's, you know, two people who absolutely hate each other. It's, it's basically you're, you're watching almost a blood sport, you know, like crossfire. Yeah, it's it's not productive, really, for it. it it's not there's no uh, civility to it. And it's not not really getting uh, anything uh, informative out there. You know, I, I've said this before. Um, so Dustin's heard me say it quite a bit. And he'll say it again. <laughs> um, but those two arguing talking heads, they're arguing their one point against the other one point. When in actuality, both talking heads are representing something that has a multitude of different points on either side. And that's not being conveyed. And I think that what they've done is they've simplified issues that are extremely complex. And so... When you are a viewer, you have been trained to understand politics in that way yeah. as an arguing match. And so you're watching it and this person is arguing against this person, Republican versus Democrat. And you're like, OK, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. That's my guy or that's my girl. I'm on their side no matter what. And I think that that mode of thinking is on its way out. I don't know. I work with teenagers and I don't know any one of them that watch the news, you know, on on TV. You know, I've asked them because I've, I've I've been curious. And every single one is like, oh, yeah, whenever I go over to my grandparents' house, I watch it. Yeah. They, they have it on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, the issues that polarize, you know, the older uh, demographics, the younger, younger generations don't well, care about. Th- they're, they're like, what? Why are you still concerned about gay marriage? Like, that's a non-issue. Think about how exactly. much things have changed in a short period of time. I mean, even within our lifetime. And I mean, you could probably base a lot of this on the internet and technology, but a lot of shit has changed. You know what I mean? And so you're having older people who are used to like 30, 40 years, the Cold War, the relative balance of things kind of always being the same. Well, I think some people are willingly forgetting about the Cold War right now, though. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of insane. Yeah. I mean, these are the same people that, you know, you would see cheering on the McCarthy trials, you know? Uh, and and now, you know, I've seen, you know, some people wearing T-shirts like, I'd ra- instead of, you know, before the T-shirt was uh, better dead than red, and now it's better red than a dem or something like that. <laughs> and, you're, and you're like, What? What has happened? Yeah, and it's and it's almost I, I don't know the the reasoning behind it, but I think I've, this is the most polarized I think I've seen this place, and especially living abroad and looking in and coming in here and you know because I've covered it for you know a lot of foreign outlets and and thinking of America as a for you know covering it as a foreign country the same way I'd cover Iraq or Turkey, um, it's it's fascinating and and you you see. That this is the most polarized it's been. Well, look at the Southern Poverty Law Center. I mean, they, I, in my own ignorance, I didn't know who they were before I wrote an article for them. 
And now that I'm I'm following them and I'm actually like seeing the product they're putting out there, I mean, they're huge. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it seems like... What do you mean they're huge? I mean, people are really paying attention to them and it's, it's, it's a lot of different types of people. So it's not just, uh, you know, 20 to 30 year olds and it's not just, uh, 30 to 40 or 50 to 60 year olds. It's, it's a bunch of different aged folks. Well, wouldn't they be branded as like a liberal media outlet? I would think so. Oh, they, they, I mean, they are. Like I did a story with, um, you know, Arizona and, and, uh, Montana with different, uh, militiamen. Oh, and, yes. they, and they all considered the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center to be propaganda leftist bullshit mm-hmm. um, because they they monitor you know what, what to be considered militias, white nationalist groups, or hate, hate groups. groups. Yeah. Um, no, they do have an asterisk that go like, hey, not all of these are hate groups, but you know, there's you know a militia is a militia. Um, but yeah, most people you know who you know, I think more conservative or right wing certainly aren't you know big fans of it yeah yeah but i think the biggest problem now is that yeah like you said it's a single issue that it's like you have to pick one side or the other it's like you you really don't you can debate stuff it's okay to for you know to have an opinion about so you know something happened and you you can look at like uh paul manafort for example and what he did in the 80s with like creating this like lobbying industry and this whole like industry around politics and i think what we're facing right now is 30 years of this system evolving into what it is. And now the, now some of the policymakers, like our parents, they are literally almost brainwashed. And I, I refer to them now as Manchurian citizens, where the Manchurian candidate would hear a, would hear a trigger and he'd snap into a, a certain mode. It's like we have these certain triggers now that just send us into our political identity. And all the people at the top, whether it's in the media or the politicians, they know how to send these triggers out on these certain issues and like trigger that political identity and get you to be like a soldier marching for them no matter what. I mean, Trump does not represent any traditional Republican values, yet they all follow him blindly. I think he's been able to tap in, you know, and Obama just mentioned this in his last speech in in Illinois. It's not, we're not a product of Trump. Trump has tapped into a system that's been building itself up for years. You know, one of those things that we noticed with, you know, hearing about Cambridge Analytica's role and all this, you know, data is king here. Uh, You can, you know, target a very specific demographic, you know, okay. Or target a person. or Yeah, it's a very specific person and and find out, you know, okay, you know, what, what, who is this person and, and cater very specific stuff to them. And that's how, that's the new way of winning elections. If you've got the data. You can do it. Well, that's and, and, marketing. Yeah. It's turning, it's turned into a game of advertising. And I think that that's, maybe it's always been like that. And maybe our generation is just more cognizant of it now, but, and it's much more specific. Like I graduated with a degree in advertising and throughout certain classes, we always talked about demographics, this demographics, that, you know, the 18 to 34 year old demographic. Now marketing companies and businesses don't need to market to a certain demographic. They can target an individual person. They can target Michael Downey. They can target Cody Liska. They can target Dustin. They're applying the same principles of advertising to politics now. I mean, when when I was in college, I did like some volunteer lobbying for a firm called R&R Partners. Well, it was a political lobbying firm and an advertising firm in the same building. And that's when I first kind of realized, whoa, 
something might be a little off here. You know, things might be going a little bit the wrong way and ruining our democracy. Yeah, and that's where, you know, now the, you know, with Facebook and YouTube deciding to remove InfoWars, it's it's a complicated issue because, you know, obviously Alex Jones says some wild stuff, you know, from, you know, uh, Sandy Hook was staged and all the kids who were killed are crisis actors. And and he's harassing the family members. That's horrible. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. But at the same time, it is freedom of speech. But then you also look at it is a private platform and they do have the right to, you know, to. But the question is, is and, you know, right now, um, you know, obviously, if you're more liberal, you're going to be saying, yes, that's good. And the right, you know, now uh, conservatives are going, oh, they're silencing conservative voices. And I, I do see where it's a slippery slope because then it can easily swing back the other way and- or it can go, you know, it's so it's, but there is a responsibility for these massive companies like Facebook to realize their power to influence public opinion and sway elections and governments and was policies. It, was it uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes that, that said uh, that bit about yelling fire in a crowded theater? And the clear and present danger. I mean, I think that a little bit of that probably applies to the Alex Jones situation. Oh, totally. Totally. With with each freedom comes responsibility. You know what I mean? And those have to get matched hand in hand. You don't, just because you have a freedom, whether it's the First Amendment or the Second Amendment, you can't just use that carte blanche because we live in a society with each other. You know, so, so we are actually, we have to bound our freedoms to a degree. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, that's where, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, is now starting to realize, you know, he'd always be like, Facebook was created to connect people in the world. We're not going to limit it. It's free. It's the, but it's like, no, you've created a very, very powerful thing. And you need to realize that. And you have a responsibility. You can't keep pushing it back and be like, no, no, it's fine. You guys, you know, police yourselves. It's like, no, you need to, you need to kind of rein that in. Yeah. When you have 2 billion people on your platform, I think there needs to be some type of government in place well, well, or something well, along those lines. Here, well, here's what happened is they started harvesting data and using it to make money. But the problem is, is that when other people are allowed to tap into that data harvesting and, and they can use it for maybe um malicious intent that doesn't work for society. Yeah. You know, Cambridge Analytica, for example. Yeah, exactly. And, but I mean, ultimately, you know, uh, Facebook likes to be like, oh, we're, you know, we're a community. It's like, no, they're, they're a data company. Yeah. They're an advertising company. They that's that's how they make money, and we are all totally responsible for fueling it. Yeah, yeah. you know, most so, people are like, I don't like that. It's like, well, it's pretty easy, just delete it. Yeah, but we're you know, it's become a staple of society almost. So it's hard for people to leave that. So I, I have to log in to Facebook every time I come to work because I'm you know I'm managing social media or I'm you know I'm I'm talking to people. And so it, it's it has it has infiltrated our lives enough to have become a part of our jobs. You know what we need to do though? We need to stop pointing our fingers at Facebook, at Trump, at all these people in power, and we need to like figure it out on our own because we still are making choices. And so this kind of brings me back to something we talked about before too, which is like critical thinking. Yeah. You know, the the, the individual needs to become. I, I'm going to say it woke. <laughs> I, I hate that word. We talked about it I, I earlier. I kind of like it when teenagers use it. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, no, it's it's a good thing, but we do. Very we, hip of you. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? We need to think critically about this shit because we're, we're close on that verge. Absolutely. I mean, now I, the biggest thing you notice is whenever someone, you know, has a question or like, oh, what is, you know, this, this fact or something, Google it and they go, oh, that's the answer. You know, they win their argument with their friend or yeah. something and then psh, close out their phone. And then that knowledge that they just had goes right out the window. No one processes it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think definitely, you know, having our you know phones and this to us has become such a crutch. And yeah, it's eliminated a lot of that critical thinking. And also our education system certainly doesn't help there. You know, it's it's pretty, uh, pretty dismal. We have a long way to go yeah. to, to make sure we have a, a society that actually uses critical thinking. I think that's what we're coming to here. And, you know, speaking of long way to go, you're into paragliding, aren't you? I am. Yeah. I was actually just cutting uh, right before I came here. You Were you up in the air? Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to fly. I think I'm going to fly Pioneer Peak tomorrow. You like how I uh, just uh, switched the subjects right just, there? Whoosh. The topic? <laughs> <laughs> that was Cody? a smooth transition. <laughs> You're getting good at this shit, man. <laughs> I'm almost like a little bit suspicious. Like all of a sudden you're going to like slide in an advertisement there. When you're up in the air, you know, you need to <laughs> fly with Alaska. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right now, sign up for a credit card. Uh... <laughs> no, well, actually, our new model is advertising free. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I do paraglide. Uh, that's one of the things like getting, uh, getting back here. Flying's amazing up here. How, how do you get? Uh, I mean, it depends if there's thermals, uh, what, but I mean, you know, Pioneer Peaks, almost 6,400 feet. Uh, you don't launch from the top there because there's like, you just reach like that top kind of shelf. Why don't you launch from the top, bro? Because <laughs> uh, it's not really possible. Um, uh, the way the rocks are and the layout, you'd, you know, need a little bit better of a space. You know, it seems like every Alaskan has an escape of some sort. You know, I, I think that's one thing I'm realizing after coming back is everyone gets out and does something. Hunting, for you, it's paragliding. For us, it's snowboarding. There's snow machining. I think that's one thing that makes Alaskans unique. Oh, it's an incredible place. I mean, wherever you go, just, just outside Anchorage, no matter where you go, you know, within 30, 40 minutes, you have incredible opportunities. Whether it's, you know, if you want to do some backcountry snowboarding, uh, paragliding, kayaking, you know, surf the board tide. It's amazing. And that's why whenever I come back, I feel like it's not enough time. You know, you're just like trying to like check the boxes, like, okay, went pack rafting, went kayaking, now I'm going to fly. And there's just not enough time. It, there's so many amazing places. Yeah. And I, I, you know, after growing up here, I feel like that's something that's new to Alaska as far as our identity. That it, you know, it used to be about work and money. And coming up here, and now I feel like it's transitioning more. I, I, I see a lot of people kind of our age in their late 20s, early 30s, and they're not up here for these great construction jobs or these, or these pipeline jobs. They're up here for this like pursuit of adventure. And I don't know if that existed as much as like the 80s, even the early 90s, you know, attracting, attracting people for adventure and like, you know, outdoor escape. There's an op-ed in ADN a while back that was talking about how younger generations are working less and, you know, opting to get outside. And then I think it's like, a, I could be wrong. I, I think it was saying basically that younger generations don't have work ethic, 
but you know, it's, I was like, that's how they circled it back around. That was the, but but that was the, that was the theme. But I was like, I was like, you know, (laughs) you know, they're working, but then they're also, you know, thinking, yeah, maybe there's this, all this amazing stuff to experience. Get outside. That seems way, way better. If you can have that balance. Um, did they turn it into a political issue? Like that sounds like a pretty fucking (laughs) liberal way of thinking. I don't remember. I mean, this this came out like a few months ago, and I just read it and was just kind of like, what? Yeah. At first, it was kind of like, oh yeah, and then and then it like started just like turning into like millennials are lazy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? Things are different. That's just the reality. And you know, when things become different, you become older, and you don't understand them. That's what you say, right? You just you don't choose to understand it. I mean, think about like GDP per capita. Think about credit systems. Just think about the way our economy works and the individual survives. We're not dependent on, you know, working 50 hours and saving as much as we need to. That's just not how our system's designed. Well, I think that it's because we can't. I yeah. mean, okay. I, I, I can't imagine a future where I own a house. Yeah, no, it's insane. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can't buy a house here. I mean, the only place... I could like foreseeably afford something is in Greece. That's why I've actually been looking at that because, you know, I'd love to have a place in Alaska, but it's just, it's not feasible. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's, it's kind of insane. So yeah, whenever you hear people being like, oh, you know, millennials or it's like, you know what? The the world is not the same place it was hell even 20 years ago. So that's the problem with people not being informed and not having the proper statistics to even understand that. And we don't deliver that kind of information to people. Yeah, I think people are really quick to generalize too. And, you know, buzzwords like millennials or hell, even liberals or conservatives just gets thrown out there as just a blanket term to generalize everyone. And it's and it's really disingenuous to actually having a conversation and looking at something and critically thinking about uh, issues or why something is the way it is rather than just, you know, pointing a finger and being like, that's X. Therefore, it's this. Well, it's easier to, to put the blame on an unknown because then it becomes a Band-Aid and you don't need mm. to actually deal with the, the actual situation. I mean, yeah. I, I know that we all, being millennials, know a lazy-ass millennial. Yeah, but there, you know, and there's, you know. There's, there's one in this room right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but there's, there's lazy 50-year-olds. There's lazy. You know, there's, exactly. You, you know, it's just like it's stereotyping. It's, you know. You know, I'd be... It's my opinion that Alaskans could be the first ones to step out of this kind of haze we're in. Because we are just, we tend to be free thinking and not want to be boxed in or labeled. And so if we are looking at the changing of the direction and people are going to be, you know, woke. Alaska. Second time, two times in one podcast. I got to really, fi- really find a new word, <laughs> but... um. Alaskans could be the first ones out of, you know, when you just look at Americans, I guess. Just because we're so isolated? Is that, is that what you're getting at? No, because we're not really isolated anymore with the internet. That's something I'm kind of realizing. Um, and I would say still, just... We still have a blockbuster, though. It closed down. <laughs> no, the last one? It did, yeah. What did they do with... Uh, or actually, um, the one in Fairbanks. It was, it's in Fairbanks that it no, closed down? No, Fairbanks is closed. Went out of business the same time as the one in Anchorage. There's one left in Bend, Oregon. What happened to uh, all of Russell Crowe's memorabilia that John Oliver I had? actually have it at my house. He's actually wearing it right yeah, now. currently. <laughs> I hope you didn't wash it, right? Of course, no. Okay, good, good. Well, that's what that smell is. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, no, I, I think you're you're right. I mean, the main thing, especially what makes Alaska interesting, is uh, our indus our main in industries are tourism, oil, and fishing. And if we're if this state is gonna you know because we've seen just recently over the past few years when oil really dropped off, we we've seen the impact on felt it. And if we're gonna you know really uh, grow and still develop the state and have a functioning economy, we've got to figure out something, you know, that's more sustainable and a different alternative. Because, you know, the way things are going, oil's not going to be, um, you know, as as profitable for the state or, you know, as um, sensible, really. Uh, but, um, and we were already seeing, you know, that kind of conundrum take place as AI is going to, you know, I think the figures are by 2030, take out uh, like 30% of jobs in America alone. Holy shit. So where, where did you read that? UBI, baby. Um, a bunch of different, I've got a, so I'm d developing a series for National Geographic and it's, you know, it's kind of about a variety of things of climate change and basically how the future is going to shake stuff up. And it's kind of like a blueprint to how, you know, it's addressing the issue, the problems, but then also offering solutions. Um, and it's like futurists, basically. Yeah, basically. solutions journalism. Yeah, <laughs> um, with a little bit of entertainment, you know, you gotta have that factor. Uh, but I mean, basically, we are, we're gonna have to rethink what is a job. You know, not everyone's gonna, you know, already working forty hours a week. Like most people you talk to working in an office, they're like, yeah, you know, like really, it only takes me like two hours to get everything done, and the rest is pretending to be busy or or just acting angry like George Costanza. Yeah, or, or <laughs> <laughs> George is angry. <laughs> or, or, or you know, or you're waiting for like you know Steve to get you know his report to you. Fucking yeah, Steve. well, and guess like, what? Steve can get your report to me if I'm in like Costa Rica surfing. Yeah, now. exactly. Now there's no point to really you know. So it, hurry up, Steve. If people TPS reports, if people have a decent work ethic, you shouldn't have to go to an office. You know, you can get it done, and and then you know, the, yeah, this whole idea that you have to have X amount of hours and this, it's like if you get the job done, you get it done. But so AI is taking away all these jobs. We're going to have to rethink, you know, shit, what's a job? You know, a lot of people are talking about, uh, Bill Gates has talked about uh, the idea of universal income. Yeah, uh, UBI. Elon Musk has too. Yeah, totally. Because yeah. um, so, there's not going to be enough. You could, could you explain that? Uh, universal basic income, basically meaning that because AI is going to be like, for example, the biggest companies that have the most data, Google, Facebook, are going to have the biggest platforms for it. So essentially what you would do is you would tax these companies uh, and and basically build out a, you know, welfare system. That basically would... a, an ongoing permanent fund dividend. We have Ex Zuckerberg came up to Alaska to study the permanent fund dividend as a way to look at how does universal basic income you know, it's it's an example, right? Yeah. So, you know, it would cover your costs for basic rent. But then, I mean, it's extremely complicated because, yeah, you'd have to, you know, start controlling housing costs or have subsidized housing. It's We've got a long ways to go, but the conversation's starting to happen because whether we like it or not, we're going to have to figure out there's going to be a lot of people out of jobs. So, I mean, truckers already, like the Tesla's trucker system, there's no reason for anyone to be driving trucks anymore. 30,000 of there. the highest paying trucker jobs will be like gone in 25 years or something is a statistic I just read. And this is because of Tesla? But, 
Well, because of technological development, uh, self-driving cars. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But okay. there's an there's one concept I read, and this actually makes sense for these like uh, self-driving trucks, and this is called universal basic ownership, and that people become owners of the robots. Like someone wrote a paper on this and was like, this could be some way to kind of um, still maintain the capitalistic drive that doesn't create complacency and laziness that they fear that like a UBI would do, right? And that we wouldn't see like economic growth anymore because people could just collect their check and sit on their ass and play video games. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was that, well, if you're if you're responsible for owning some of this stuff and maybe it's maintenance or taking care of it or, or like there's some kind of competition there, mm -hmm. that could be a way. And I don't I didn't really buy into it, but it was an interesting concept as we like explore kind of the. Yeah, there's a lot of other discussions that you happen about. I mean, another thing is that to value other stuff and label it as a job. So, you know, you would go to, say, a nursing home and you're, you basically, you'd get your universal basic income and then it would be like, you do X amount of hours basically going and volunteer. What now is volunteer work would be your new job. Go clean up a park, go, you know, the stuff that basically human interaction would become the new thing that's valued. Dude, we're basically finding a way to create like a, um, you know, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a perfect society. What do they call utopia? it? A utopia. Yeah. It's like, that's almost what we would, well, you think we'd like inevitably go that way because that's what, you know, humans would want to do. Right. And so maybe that's, cause that's what it sounds like. Right. Like, yeah. Long way to go. <laughs> yeah. But, but like, but like, you know, three quarters of our population doesn't have to go work in a factory and get sick with cancer. Now, like three quarters of our population population gets to go and take care of society and give back you know stuff we used to call volunteering is actually paid work and what it does is create almost a perfect society is that what you want no to be <laughs> to have the robots be our overlords yeah <laughs> i just want to own the robots I mean, man we're kind of already there with you know everyone with their smartphones yeah exactly you walk down the street and everyone's got their face in it no yeah. one looks up anymore or out you know or you sit at a bar well, pretty soon the smartphones will be in the glasses, so we will be able mm. to look at each other, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> you spend a lot of time in the Middle East, and then you come back to Alaska. You know, for like some of our Alaskan listeners who, who you know, might not understand it over there or get to travel over there, are there any similarities that you have noticed between that culture and Alaskan culture? You know, I think, I think of one similarity and... Uh, Maybe you can help me come up with the name or re remind me what it is, but there's a holiday in Islamic culture where they sacrifice a bunch of goats. Is that correct? Eid, is it wrong? Yeah, it's Eid, Eid, right? Eid al-Adha, yeah. Okay. And so when I think of that, I think of like hunting season in Alaska because it's very subsistence-based feeding your family. Mm -hmm. And I just, that's just, I was trying to think today, like what are the, the, um, the similarities in cultures? Well, I mean, I think it's same kind of everywhere. You know, a lot of people, um, you know, look at the Middle East as, you know, especially you know, the U.S.'s relationship with it as one that of, you know, exploitation of oil, of wars, drone strikes, you know, and then ISIS. They, you know, they, they see, you know, a very, very small part of it and don't realize that, you know, you know, that's a such a small part of it and that obviously, you know, there's such a rich history there. And, you know, most people everywhere, everywhere I've traveled, it's the same thing. People want to be able to provide for their family. They want to have a job and they want to live their lives. 
Um, and most of the time war or, uh, you know, um, oppressive governments get in the way of that. Uh, so, you know, especially, you know, in Lebanon, you see, you know, people love, you know, they're you know, out having big dinners, cooking food together, their families, music, dancing. They're people. They're just uh, it's, people. Yeah, it's, it's all, it's the same everywhere. Yeah. It's the same everywhere. And you've got, you know, uh, extremists, you know, there, and you also have extremists here. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, you know, the version of Al Qaeda, uh, you know, in the U.S. is like the KKK or, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, some of these militias you have. Uh, so it's, you know, just remembering that those are outliers that, um, you know, and, and the, the way media works is, of course, the, the craziest people <laughs> tend to get the most attention. Mm -hmm. And it kind of like it's an echoing chamber that makes it seem like it's much bigger than it is when, in, you know, in reality that, you know, I think I think a lot of people should go you know, go visit. So Lebanon's beautiful. Um, there's there's a lot of amazing places. There's problems for sure. But there's there's problems here also. Um, you know, it's a big world out there. And, you know, most people are, you know, we're, there's a lot more things that we have in common than that divide us. And it's just like little tiny things that seem to just polarize us and send us flying apart. And that, you know, really here in America that I think hopefully sooner we need to kind of put that aside and, and realize that, you know, why are basically a bunch of old white men in Congress <laughs> dividing us when, you know, <laughs> you know, and they're like, you, you can't have affordable healthcare. Meanwhile, their healthcare program, you know, uh, covers their boner pills. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, an, it's insane. So, um, yeah, I think realizing that there's, we have a lot more in common. So we've, we've talked a lot about, about heavy, heavy subjects right now. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you kind of gave us a little sneak peek at your accent ability and your ability to imitate. Do you want to just kind of end on, on some of your impressions? <laughs> um, uh, sure. I, I mean, I, I can do like. I think at least a decent Attenborough. Um, Wait, who's that? David Attenborough? Come on, Planet Earth. Oh, I've seen it, but I didn't know that was the narrator. Okay, um, I apologize. I, I I love your Attenborough. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's do it. All right, let me think about. Can you do it with like a silverback gorilla fighting a grizzly bear, a Kodiak grizzly? Okay, can you do that? Though highly unusual, the silverback gorilla comes across the grizzly bear. It's a battle for who will take home today's dinner, a whale carcass, and no one's going to give up easily. This time of year, the grass is dying, so visibility is clear, and the bear's aware the silverback is moving in. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is so much better than the YouTube video, dude. That was so good, dude. And so who won? Who won? Oh, man. I don't... I don't know who would win that. I mean, the bear's claws is a big advantage, but silverbacks are massive. But I would say, and a grizzly, the claws. Yeah, and the but, teeth. But it would be... Well, the silverbacks got big teeth, too. But I think... Uh, I think the but bear, they're not incisors. Yeah. You know, 
You know, I, I, oh, I think wow. I, we got a, I, we have a biologist here. A zoologist. <laughs> yeah, is, that, is that a marine biologist over there, George Costanza? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think the Kodiak rips out the jugular of the gorilla and it's over. I, mm. I say the silverback pounds that into the dust. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We're going to figure this out at the end of crude conversations. Yeah. But man, th- thanks for coming on, dude. Thank yeah, you. Really thanks, appreciate Michael. It. And, right. and thanks for all the work you're doing over there. It's important. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah. Take care. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by Cody Liska and Dustin H. James for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats.